Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to read from verses 12 down to 31. And today I hope to consider together verses 26 through 31, but just to kind of help us set the context of where we're at, let's look together at Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 31. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that is promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose you, shall he be that thought worthy, who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, a unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As part of my introduction today, I'm going to read from chapter 18 of the Second London Confession of Faith, paragraph 4 that's dealing with the assurance of grace and salvation. I think you can immediately see from the context of what we're dealing with today, 
I want to start off the ship on the right course of a proper understanding of assurance of grace and salvation in light of this passage. Our confession says, representing biblical truth, that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in the preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God withdrawing the light of His countenance and suffering even such as fear Him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith. That love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the same meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. Church, it would be a gross understatement to say that the verses that we are considering today in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31, over the years have severely tried the assurance of salvation in the hearts of weak believers. Of course, this is understandable at those times when believers are shaken in their conscience for having committed sins against God. And furthermore, committing sins that they readily participated in because their flesh wanted to do so. At such times, the words that we have in our text today in verses 26 through 31, especially 26, they pierce through the Christian's armor like a flaming arrow. And the effect that is brought about in that fallen believer's life is to deter them from approaching the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The effect of which, of that piercing arrow that plagues their conscience, especially if they allow verse 26 to echo and amplify in their mind, it deters them from the atoning sacrifice that they once found forgiveness in. The atoning sacrifice that they once found restoration in. The atoning sacrifice that they once found assurance in. I believe that this difficult warning passage and others that are contained in the book of Hebrews is why perhaps on the surface the book of Hebrews appears, and I put that word in brackets, it appears to contain contain contradicting propositions. For instance, In many places, you and I have observed in the book of Hebrews how that the high priestly work of Jesus Christ is exalted like none other through all of the Bible. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, you and I have observed that this exaltation of the superior high priestly blood work of Jesus Christ is placed at a point 
to where all questions should be removed in your mind if you have trusted in that blood, that that blood will perpetually cleanse you, cover you, and forgive you. That has been a repeated theme all throughout the book. Then, there are these passages, such as the one today that we come to, which appear to suggest, do they not, that once someone has been covered by that once sacrifice, blood atoning work of Jesus Christ, once someone has trusted in his gospel blood atoning work, that they somehow can lose their salvation. Or they somehow can sin in such a way that there is no more application of that blood to their sins. That is why, dear church, that it is imperative that we possess a correct understanding of what is being taught in these verses, 26 through 31. And I hope and I trust that in doing so, as we walk down through them, that there is going to be removed from your mind all contradictions of the assurance of salvation in the heart of believers, and that you will be further propelled and encouraged to continue with patience, perseverance, to lay hold of the promises that are set forth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it would remove from you anxiety. It would remove from you a plaguing um, whispers from the evil one of past sins, of present sins, of your anchored in the blood atoning work of Christ. I hope that that's what happens. Now, prior to jumping in the text, let's consider briefly the overall and the immediate context of our passage, verses 26 and 31. You know that it's always important to find the context of where you're at and trying to understand something that appears to be somewhat difficult. Context, they say, is king, and that is true. What is the overall context that's led us up to chapter 10? Well, the overall context is that this inspired writer, he's wishing to present and press upon these early converts from Judaism into Christianity. He's impressing upon them, once again, with clarity, the person, the work, and the covenant of Jesus Christ. That's the overall context. He set out chapter 1 to do that, and he's been hammering that home all along. And remember, the overall context in his presentation of this gospel covenant of Christ, he has always alluded to them as professors and as believers. He's, he's talking to this general audience of people that have said, yes, we believe, yes, we are Christians. And we know that because oftentimes he makes many references to them as brothers or brethren or holy ones. So he is giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's the overall context. But now coming up to where we're at today in a more immediate context, beginning with chapter 8, he began to demonstrate how that Jesus' covenant is far superior to the old covenant using Jeremiah 31. You recall that. And then in chapters 9 and then in chapter 10, he began to labor, didn't he? 
of the superiority of Christ's high priestly sacrificial work upon the cross over that of the old covenant sacrificial system and the old covenant priesthood. That's what he's been leading up to as he gets here closer to where we're at today. He's, he emphasized it. Look at your Bibles in Romans, I mean Romans, in uh, Hebrews 9 where we're at. Look at 9.12, this emphasizing of Christ's finished work by the sacrifice of His blood. Verse 12 there in chapter 9. By His own blood, He, Jesus, entered once into the holy place, having obtained, you see the accomplishment, eternal redemption. And then coming closer, inching closer and closer where we're at today, chapter 10, verse 12. This man, Jesus, after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, you hear the sufficiency, the application there, What's it, what's it accomplished? He sat down on the right hand of God. And then in verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever, there again is the efficacy, the accomplishment of what he did, them that are sanctified. Verse 18, chapter 10, getting close to where we're at today, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And then in our last message from Hebrews, we got from um, Verse 19 to verse 25, where he began to give them imperatives of how to apply this truth. And we looked at that under two messages, the Christian experience, right? He's beginning to say, now that you have owned this blood, now that you, you profess this blood, now that you uh, confess this covenant commitment and uh, your covenant part in the new covenant, here, moving forward, is some imperatives that you must follow to be preserved. And then we have our verses today, 26 through 31. And guess what? Right after 26 and 31, he bookends this chapter, verses 32 to 39, with more Christian experience. You need patience. We need patience, etc., etc. But here, in dealing with how to live in light of new covenant realities as a believer. He puts 26 and 31. This very sober, eye-opening warning. Following His powerful encouragement and imperatives to engage in the new covenant life, verses 19-25, we've considered to maintain and be steadfast in the profession of faith. He now comes to verse 26 and he says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sins. We see in verse 26, beginning with the word for, that his intention is to link what he's about to say with what he has already said in verses 19 and 25. And so, for is intended to be a motivation for them to diligently heed to the imperatives that He's already given them in verses 20, 19 to 25. What were those imperatives? Well, look in your Bible. Remember, He said, Brothers, now that we have boldness to enter into the holiest of the blood of Jesus, what? By a new and living way. Live in a new and living way. You've been covered. You've been made righteous in the blood of Christ. Put away the old dead works. That thing that could not save you. What did he say in verse 21? Oh, we have a high priest. You live in a way that you have a high priest over the house of God in Jesus. Verse 22. Here's the imperative. Draw near with a true heart. Not a hypocritical heart. 
You know that Jesus has forgiven you. You trust in His work. You have no doubts that His gospel message is true. Verse 22. Hold fast, verse 23, the imperative. Without wavering. Verse 24. And let us, here it is, the one another's, consider one another, understand one another, come alongside one another when we're doubting. And verse 25, oh, so important, don't forsake your assembling of yourselves together. It's as though in verse 26, with the little word for, he is expecting in a response or reaction to his imperatives. For instance, in verse 22, does it really matter? Does it really truly matter if a professing believer doesn't approach God with a true heart in the way that He's appointed in the new covenant through the blood atoning work of Jesus Christ? Does it really matter? Verse 23, do we really need to be so serious about our profession of Christ's gospel, His superiority, His exclusive high priestly work? Does it really need to be taken all that serious? I mean, after all, can it be that Plus maybe a mixing or bringing aside along it other things. Verse 24, he's imagining perhaps what some may have been thinking in this first century church. Does it really matter? All that much to consider or to understand one another in the covenant community that is the church. Does it really matter to be diligent, to, to be provoking one another and to love and to good works? Verse 25, should we really make it that big of a deal? of the importance of gathering and becoming more connected to each other in God's family? And the answer in verse 26 with that little word for, the answer is, it matters a great deal. Yes, all that I just told you in verses 19 to 25, pause, verses 26 to 31, pick it back up in verses 32 to 39. Yes, those things matter. They are wonderful privileges And they ought to be considered by every child of God who's been brought effectually into the covenant community through the mediation work of Jesus Christ. They ought to be counted as precious spiritual means by which God has given His people and His wonderful design for your well-being and your perseverance. And so with the placement of this warning, The writer is strategically warning that to neglect such things is to possibly bring yourself to a state that when sin occurs, it can continue to occur to the point to where all hope of forgiveness and assurance is forfeited. And therefore, he uses this warning to stop them in their tracks and to get their undivided attention. Now, let's get into verses 26 to 31. We understand what he's trying to do with it now. To begin to rightly understand this passage, we must first begin with who is the identity of those to whom the warning is giving. It says, for if we sin willfully. Well, from the overall immediate context, we know that it is all those who have made a knowledgeable profession of the gospel. They have a profession. However, as we've alluded to, and oftentimes during this series, we have acknowledged it, the inspired writer does not claim to have infallible knowledge if they are truly converted or not. All he acknowledges is, is he gives them the benefit out, and he says, I call you brother, you confess this, you profess this, 
so forth and so on. And so there is the audience here, as we're trying to identify who it is, it is those who have a knowledgeable profession. That's why again and again we've noticed that he continually states warnings to all of the professors collectively. And then he has, hasn't he, graciously added things such as he did in Hebrews 6.9 where he said, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak with such hard warnings. Right? He's acknowledging his audience. The we in verse 26 is an audience of people who are professing faith. But it's also important for us to observe that their profession of the gospel is not to be regarded or understood by us as those who profess the faith in some sort of relative ignorance of its claims, of its covenant promises. Especially the gospel's exclusive claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, That would have been the gospel that this inspired writer would have preached to these former people who practiced Judaism. Jesus is the Messiah. He is, according to the witness of John, the way, the truth, and the life. It is only through Him that we will have permanent forgiveness of sin. We can be certain that their knowledge, the we here, who were professing the truth, encompassed an understanding of what the gospel claimed and what it promised. How do we know that? Well, look at your Bibles in verse 26. It says so. They received, the battle in the Greek, they took hold of, they possessed, they had it in their hand, the knowledge of the truth. In the Greek here, it's important for you to understand that the word knowledge carries with it the idea, according to the Strong's lexicon, Precise and correct knowledge. So it wasn't just a a false representation of the gospel. No, they heard the true, real, unadulterated gospel. And they said, I understand it. I accept it. And furthermore, I publicly profess it. I'm going to leave the fold of Judaism from the second temple still standing and worshiping there. And I'm going, to grab, I'm going to gather with the rest of you. Some we see here are tempted to not gather. That's part of the warning or the imperative in, in verses 19 to 25. But nonetheless, they've accepted, they have received the knowledge of the truth, right? You see that. Well, what was the truth that they received? I don't think this needs much explanation. Simply because the inspired writer has already done a very extensive job in articulating the truths of the gospel up until this point, hasn't he? And so quite naturally, when we come to verse 26, and we know who the we are, professors, who are informed, we know that the truth spoken here is very simple. The gospel truth that he's been addressing all throughout this letter. And so these truths, as they all culminate in Christ, all throughout the Old Covenant, he's been explaining, that is the truth that they said, yes, we agree. And we will gather with others who agree with that truth as well. They didn't push back on Paul when he said in Ephesians 4, truth is in Jesus. The claims of John 14.6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. We already said that. They said, yes, that's all all true. Therefore, beloved, when we're considering the identity 
of who is to receive this warning and, and, and give it their undivided attention. It's those in view here who heard the gospel. They understood what they heard. They received what they understood. And to add further weight to the warning regarding apostasy, they publicly profess the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. That is the we of Hebrews 26. Now, before moving on, I think all this is helpful in establishing just a baseline for rightly understanding the text. In the letter's original historical setting, the writer refers to Jews who, though they understood the gospel, and though they professed faith in Jesus, they were being tempted, weren't they, to go back to the old covenant, to leave what they said they professed. While that's the original historical application, the historical setting, the application of this text is not limited only to the original audience, as we've demonstrated oftentimes in this sermon series, but it speaks to anyone who are tempted to depart from the gospel and learn and return to a formal philosophy, another religion, or another worldview, one of which cannot possibly make any sacrifice, atonement, or appeasement to the wrath of God for that person's sins that they have created, that they have committed against their holy maker and creator. The warning still stands. So, what is the sin then? Which if committed willfully, verse 26, there remains no more remission of sin. And I think that this is really where the rubber meets the road. Simply because many wrongly apply this text to themselves. They willfully consent to sin. They then are in despair of seeking God for any forgiveness for their sin. Because they read this passage and they think that Christ's blood will no longer atone for the sin that I have done because I have done it willfully. I've done it with knowledge. And I wanted to transgress against God's law word. And so therefore, since I have sinned willfully, with knowledge, sometimes headlong, this text is teaching that I have no forgiveness in Christ. What I want us to all rightly understand, and I hope from here forward to demonstrate for you, is that the willful sin mentioned here does not speak of just any or every kind of sin, but of one sin in particular, the sin of turning away from professing and owning the Lord Jesus Christ and His covenant as your only hope for forgiveness and salvation. That is the singular sin that is being spoken of here, and I hope to demonstrate that. The sin in view here, because of the entire context, I believe, demands, it's not just sinning voluntarily. It's not just sinning unintentionally or with intent. It's not sinning with the knowledge of God's commandment. But it's sinning with a settled purpose 
that will manifest itself at some point in time that I find Christ, I find His gospel, I find His covenant, I find His promises repugnant, disgusting, and worth no value. It's all a sham. That's the sin that's being spoken of here. For that sin, there is no remission for that sin. You see, when an individual has sinned, yes, knowingly, yes, voluntarily, because let's be honest, there is no such thing as a sin that's not done involuntarily, right? Well, I, I take that back. There are some where people are forced. There can be coercion. There can be forced sin. People are made to sin. But the, the point is here, when that sin is accompanied with a heart posture and attitude, that finds all the gospel promises repugnant and it moves forward in a consistent heart posture that way, there is forfeited, there is no longer available any blood of Christ. Why? Because that individual, that apostate, has locked themselves up like the man in the iron cage of Pilgrim's Progress and he says, there is no more grace for me. There is no more forgiveness for me. Jesus has nothing else for me. I will never go back to Him again. That's the sin. Willfully, high-handedly done. There has no more forgiveness held forth for it. How do we know that? How do I know that? How do I seek to convince you of this interpretation of this passage which is wrecked. It has shipwrecked the faith of many weak believers. Well, I want to approach it by pointing out to you, first of all, a proper understanding of this adverb. I don't like to do this a lot in my sermons, but it is helpful here. This little adverb, understanding it correctly, willfully. The verb, the action is sin, right? That's in 26. But the adverb is done willfully. What does this mean? I've alluded to it a little bit, but now let's dig in a little deeper. In the Greek, it carries with it this idea to sin willfully or voluntarily as opposed to sins committed inconsiderately or from ignorance or from weakness. However, when we see how it's used, this Greek word translated willfully, we see that it's not only just an action it's not only just someone doing something. It has nuances connected to it in the Greek. And you have to understand that to rightly understand what type of sin is being done here where there is no remission for sin. I gave you the 30-second cliff note version already, but now I want to prove it to you, right? That's what I'm trying to do. So what I'm going to do is I'll share with you three verses from the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, So we're dealing with Hebrews 10.26, a Greek word, translated willfully. What's the etymology? What's the word structure, existence, all the tentacles that are connected to this word and all of its little nuances? Well, to get that, we look to the Septuagint and we see how other related words with willfully is used there to see that it's much more than just having a knowledge of something and doing it, willfully or voluntarily, the sin. Okay? 
So listen how Psalms 54, 6 reads. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. The action there, I will praise thee, O Lord. The action there, I will freely make sacrifices to you, O Lord. Guys, it's not a robot just doing a performance there. The nuance there is it's someone who is raptured up with their entire being. God has done a work in their heart in a positive sense. We're looking at it here. Oh, now I will freely sacrifice unto thee, O Lord. You see? 1 Chronicles 29.9 Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And the Greek translation there in the Septuagint is closely connected to our word that we have here in Hebrews 10.26. So I'm trying to get you to see here. We have to understand the more nuanced, deeper meaning of this word, willingly or willfully. It says there, Then the people rejoice for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Last one, Psalms 110.3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb, from the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Here, beloved, in these three examples, in the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of these Hebrew words, it is done in such a way that conveys so much more than a mindless, emotionless, voluntary action but rather a voluntary action, action that reflects a settled disposition uh, or, or posture of one's heart and their entire soul, right? So there's, in those actions, in those three examples we just looked at, there's a whole lot of soul connected to it, right? There's a whole lot of wholeheartedness connected to it. There is a whole lot of personhood connected to it. They are, that is what they want to do. They want to consistently do it. It's a state of where they are at as an individual. And that is exactly the sin of apostasy. It's not just saying something that's wrong. It's not just beginning to believe something's wrong. But again, going back to what I said earlier, it's, you see, sinning willfully it's, it's, it's this wholeheartedness that I, I, I know what's right, but I don't believe it. I really don't believe it. The sin of apostasy may, and it will, manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Sometimes when we think of apostasy, we think people just getting up and walking out of church saying, I'm never coming back. Usually that's the bomb at the end, right? But there's gradual steps of apostasy along the way. But no matter how apostasy manifests itself, it shares this one thing in common, this one common denominator, all manifestations of apostasy. They arise from a heart which has chosen to despise God and has chosen to find His Son and the forgiveness offered as useless and repugnant. They're adverse to the covenant of grace. It's where it begins. Now, knowing this, we better understand why the inspired writer 
it's strategically placing this warning, you notice in verses 27 and 28, right alongside old covenant warnings. That's what he's doing in verses 27 and 28. For people who are committing this type of sin, he says in verse 20, there's no more 26, there's no more sacrifice for sins, 27, but only a certain fearful looking of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Much like the sons of, uh, of Korah. They were devoured up. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. He's, he's drawing these parallels from the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, the old covenant law, to help emphasize a parallel that he wants to apply in verses 29 and 30. So let's seek to try to consider the parallel that he's wishing for us to see here. Now, under the old covenant arrangement being referred to in verses 27 and 29, there were a lot of provisions made to appease the wrath of God. God gave provisions through the sacrificial system. He gave four sacrifices that could be given to atone for sin and to forgive sin. There was the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and the sin offering. Some of these offerings were voluntary. The most important ones were mandatory by the law. And there was only two that were mandatory. That was the sin offering was the purpose of offering to atone for sin to provide cleansing and defilement. And the other mandatory one was the trespass offering, which was given and provided by God to atone for unintentional sins that required reimbursement to an offended party. However, and especially in light of our understanding regarding sinning willfully, there were some sins committed in the Old Testament to which there was no atonement available for. In other words, there were some sins that were so high-handed that were done in such a way that God said, we will not make any atonement for sin for that. And that's the parallel that the author is wanting you to see. He's wanting you, he's wanting them, especially as first century Jews, to say, do you remember that there were some sins that you've been taught as a young Jewish boy or girl, now you're an adult, that God saw as so repugnant, so high-handed, that it required immediately the death without any trial in the presence of two or three witnesses? These sins were those that were combined when we look at Scripture with the action of repugnancy to not only the law itself that it was sitting against, but the God who gave the law. We're going to look in a moment at these type of sins that had no remedy or atonement for them. But I want to be clear about something as we're about to look at them. These high-handed sins, as I'm describing them, you're going to see they're not the sins in which a person is betrayed when their better knowledge of knowing better or their conscience are overmastered by fleshly powers or appetites. Rather, they're sins that are committed with a heart and a posture that utterly despises not only God as their maker and judge, but also as God who gave the law. There are high-handed sins we're going to see in a moment that are committed at enmity with God. They hate God. They hate His rule. They hate His crown over their life. 
And the scriptures do testify for us there are other sins that are sins of creaturely weakness. But although they are committed, they are committed nonetheless under the subjection of God's rightful rule over an individual's life. They go to the temple. They ask for forgiveness. They take the sacrifice, demonstrating they're still subject under the authority of God. You see the difference? There are some that are committed that are enmity with God. I hate his crown. I hate his covenant. I don't want him in my life. I'm doing this with a set jaw and clenched teeth. And then there's others. I was weak. I was foolish. I shouldn't have done that. What's the provision? I'm going to trust in that provision. This comes out in Numbers chapter 15, probably most succinctly and clearly. Numbers 15, 23 through 29. For the sake of time, we can't turn there. But there, the Lord tells Moses of his willingness to forgive certain sins that are connected with creaturely weakness, sins of ignorance. However, when he gets to verses 30 and 31, for our purposes today, listen to what he says. But the soul that, do, that doeth ought commit transgressions presumptuously. This is where we get the idea of high-handed sin, a class of sins that are so high-handed there is no forgiveness because they have with them connected this heart posture of, I can't stand you, God. That's what the Hebrew word presumptuously means. A strengthened hand, an independent, autonomous hand. You see, you get the idea now. He says in verse 30, after talking about the atonement for sins that can be made for sins of ignorance, creaturely weakness, so forth and so on. He gets to verse 30, he says to Moses, the soul that does ought presumptuously, high-handedly, with a clenched fist and string, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, that same person reproaches the Lord and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Why? Verse 31, he says, Because that person has despised. In the Hebrew, it carries with it the idea a disdain for, held in contempt. Because that person has despised, disdained, held in contempt the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. And then, in Hebrews following, verse 32 to 41, it gives a case study. It's the case study. Many of you have probably read it and you thought, wow. God's really serious about his law. He seems to be so inflexible about his law, almost to the point in our Western mind where it's somewhat unreasonable. That's the case study in verses 32 through 41 and Numbers 15 where the man is out walking and he picks up sticks on the Sabbath, you remember? And his friends saw him. They confront him about it. And then he's stoned to death. God tells Moses to stone this guy to death. Now, in the modern church context, especially in the West, we think that this guy, we get this picture, right? Of this guy on the Sabbath day walking with his family. Oh, hey, let us collect some twigs here so we can have it for an evening fire, so forth and so on. And then he's seen by some friends, and then he's brought forward to be stoned to death just for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. What you need to understand is what's really going on here is that that man broke the Sabbath command deliberately because he thought in his heart it was a silly long, a silly law to begin with. You see, he despised the word of the Lord. 
And since he despised, had disdained for, held in contempt the word of the Lord, he then presumptuously with a strengthened high hand said, I'm not going to have any God over me who rules like that. That is such a silly law. I'm not going to obey it. And in fact, I'm going to deliberately disobey it. You see, where we get the idea of a high-handed heart, a high-handed sin, who has a disdain, can't stand the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, the sin of apostasy that's being warned against here, it functions like this. It functions like this. But how does it get to a state like this? How could one possibly get to a place to have heard the gospel, make steps to join themselves with others who are professing the gospel, and then all of a sudden begin to have such a presumptuous, high-handed heart posture and develop in a hatred to God? Well, many Greek scholars pointed out in my studies of verse 26 that it's imperative for us to understand that it's not by a single act of turning aside that one ends this way, but rather it's a progressive point of becoming in a state of apostasy. And that's why the warnings are so serious. That's why I'm not going to get up here and tell you, oh, hey, you know, once saved, always saved, fold the card up, put it in the back pocket, don't have anything to worry about. I'm not going to do that. I've labored. We've all labored together through Hebrews 1 to 10 up to verse 19. And we said, our security is in Christ. Look to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't ever doubt Christ. Do it without wavering, so forth and so on. But understand that getting to the state of apostasy that's being warned about here, because of a present participle that's included in verse 26, it suggests a continuing action. It suggests a continual heart posture. So beloved, hear me. Because I walk in your shoes. I am but a man who is a Christian. And I I will confess to you, there has been times in my pilgrim journey where I have asked myself, where is the power of the Gospel? Is it true? Is it real? Do you not see? Those are apostate thoughts and temptations. When those thoughts creep upon your heart and into your mind, run. Run as if your life depends on it to the throne of grace. Read again and again that who confesses, they shall grant, there shall be granted to them repentance. There shall be granted to them forgiveness. Do not trifle. Do not play with such thoughts. It's a state of apostasy that's arrived to over time. No one ever walks out of the church from the Christian faith overnight is the point. It's a high-handed sin willfully committed over time to where your conscience is blunted and doubts of the gospel and the validity of the power of Christ's blood are beginning to be drawn into question. It is not, I repeat, it is not under the influence of fear or some other weak creaturely passion that plagues our unsanctified bodies 
and minds. Fear like the Apostle Peter when he was being threatened. That is not the sinning willfully here being described of. It is the sin of turning your back. Of walking away from the promises of Jesus Christ. And I don't want anyone in here to believe that you are immune from the temptations of the sin of apostasy. I want every single one of us in here, including myself especially, to take serious the imperatives of 19 to 25 and then following 32 to 39. Consider one another. Understand one another to provoke unto love and unto good works. We have to do that with one another. Why? Because we're such weak, creaturely people, aren't we? And we know that we can fall in these ruts and we begin to question the goodness of Christ. I will never forget, I had a man I was talking with, a brother, and he, he, he was just telling me because of the valley he was in, you know, there are such things as spiritual depressions in the, in the Christian's life. How can there not be? Paul talked about it in Romans 7. The two natures warring against one another. Him there describing himself as a wretched man. Can't wait to be delivered from the body of death. Do you think that Paul wasn't at a low point in his Christian walk at that point? Of course he was. And who of us in here who have not been there? The hoary heads in the room will be readily ready to raise their hand and say, Yeah, I felt like that you know, before and I was ready to give up. That's why... Those imperatives are so vital. That's why when someone's not here on Sunday, it is your obligation to pick up the phone and call them and speak to them. Why? Because you don't know if in their flesh, the fallenness, the still yet unsanctified portions of their being or the world or the devil through the internet and these apostates who have deconstructed from the Christian faith are not whispering in their ear. And drawing and pulling them, adding to a place where they could end up as a state of apostasy. Don't at this point of the message think in your mind, oh, well, all that proves is that they really weren't of the elect. If that's what anyone in here is thinking right now, you are missing the entire boat of what this writer is trying to accomplish. He's trying to shake you and to take serious. Everything that you say you believe. The Christian walk. The Christian's life dying to ourselves, signified in baptism, being raised anew in Christ. It is not just a mere profession of religion. It is serious. And he's intending to show them how serious it is. He's not pretending to know their hearts. All he knows is their profession. But he does know that there's some whispers and there's some talking about leaving Christ and going back to Judaism. And he's telling them in parallel with what they would have known to be true from the old covenant warnings with such high-handed sins. He applies it now in verse 29. How do you think that you're going to be okay? if you make that step of apostasy. 
Look at verse 29. How much sorer punishment suppose you shall he, the person, be thought worthy of? Think of it. If you think that those under the Old Testament could apostatize in such a high-handed way and be dealt with in the way that they were, how do you think that God is going to treat those who trample under, the, under their feet, as if it were, in a disdaining way, the Son of God. And here in verses 29 to 31, what he's trying to get them to do is grasp the seriousness of walking away from Christ's blood and Christ's covenant. I like how verse 29 is rendered in the NASB. We don't have sermon notes today, but work with me here. It renders it and translates this way. I think it, it, it clarifies, the old English, I do, I, do, I do gripe here a little bit. I think the, the old English kind of loses the thrust of the, of, the, of the meaning. Listen how the NASB 95 edition translates it. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded, here's the high-handedness, as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted, there's the disdain, the spirit of grace. What's being outlined here, some people go back and forth about this, are these three separate sins, you know, that's done through apostasy? Or is it three ways to describe just one sin of apostasy? I think either way you shake it, it still gets the point of cross. Consider, first of all, the trodden underfoot, the Son of God. To apostatize from Christ, it is an attempt, even though it's not going to be successful, because we are but creatures, He is the risen King and Creator. It is an attempt to detract from His exaltation that He accomplished at the cross work, and that's been reiterated again and again in the book of Hebrews. So, to trodden under the foot, the Son of God, and to walk away from Him, is in a sense to place an indictment that no, Jesus, all that stuff that he said he did, all that stuff the apostles said he did, all that stuff about him sitting at the right hand of God because it is finished, all that stuff, that's not really true. You see the indictment against the only begotten Son of God who came into this created world to do this work in such a uh, 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 AJ was talking about it or uh, originated from love a condensation of glory into humanity to do that and to trodden under foot as if it were the gospel the atoning work of the son of God it is he says it not me I'm just the deliverer of the message I know this isn't popular but he says how much more a severe punishment do you think that that individual will incur who has been instructed in the gospel, said, yes, I believe the gospel, but in the heart and eventually manifested in their actions will walk away from that gospel. How much more severe do you think that person is going to receive punishment? You can't get away from it, friends. That's what the text is saying in verse 29. Now, I was thinking this through and I was thinking to myself, hmm, how can there be without getting into you know, Dante's Inferno, how can there be you know, certain levels of punishment in hell? I mean, it's hell, right? It's all gnashing of teeth and eating of worms, right? How much more, I mean, do the worms, are they radioactive worms and got, you know what I mean? I mean, your imagination just tries to figure out how that could be. But the text is saying that. That's what that means when it says, how much severer punishment do you think he will receive who has trodden 
the Son of God under his foot. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I think about the God who is a God of justice and a God of wrath, a God who sent a flood and destroyed the entire world except for eight people. And I would not want to place myself in that category of wanting to guess how much of more of a severe punishment might happen, right? What about counting the blood of the covenant? An unholy thing. Well, the, the sin here that accompanies apostasy is that the precious blood of Christ is accounted to be nothing really special. It's nothing any more than the blood of bulls and goats. In this context, that's a, the exact application he's making for these first century Jews. But friends, we could do this as well. We don't have sacrificial systems here with bulls and goats. But do we not at times? If we were to fall in a state of apostasy, come to a place where we see that the atoning work of Christ was really of no avail. These people who claim to have once believed this and deconstructed, they call it blood magic. What is all, what's all this blood magic? You know, that's their, that's their derogatory term for the sacrificial blood atoning work of Jesus Christ. And then we see, lastly, it's done in despite of the witness of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember back in Hebrews chapter 6, he was talking about those who tasted the things of God, but yet were judged finally? Remember we talked about in the Greek that meant a sampling? They tasted of the Holy Spirit. Remember they, they were given some light. They were granted some understanding. They were granted some light. And here, eventually it manifests itself as they completely reject the light that they were given. So, the apostates, they have contempt for the Holy Spirit. They have contempt. They reject the light that He has given them. The Holy Spirit who comes and makes alive through the preaching of grace. Considering all of this, I think we see that the apostate really has a Trinitarian rejection. They can't stand the God who is the author of the law and the gospel. They can't stand the Son of God who come and gave His blood. And they don't, even, they, they don't even want and they can't stand the Holy Spirit who has in the past pricked their conscience, given them a taste, shown them some light. No, 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 I do not want any more of this. I am walking away forever. For such an individual, friends, comes... The Old Testament, he brings these parallels back in 30 and 31. God will recompense vengeance upon such a person. It's a fearful thing, that's why he says, to fall into the hands of the living God, especially in light of there is, friends, you cannot get away from verse 29. And this context, what we're in in this passage, there is a certain fury that will come upon those who apostatize. Yes, all mankind who does not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ will be judged. And they will be judged for their sins. But what he is conveying and what I'm seeking to convey here is that while it may not be very popular, there is a special fury for those who trample underfoot the Son of God and the blood of His covenant and walk away from it. So dear 
professing Christian today. You need to take very seriously the imperatives, the things that are given to you in verses 19 to 25, and you need to take oh so careful attention to verses 32 to 39 next week. Not in a sense, listen to me, do not walk away from here in a sense as this is some sort of fear tactic. That's disgusting to think that way. Don't walk away from here that this is some sort of religious manipulation in order to make you stay a Christian. (laughs) God does not need to use manipulation to keep His children committed to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ. He has His Holy Spirit to do that. He is giving these warnings because remember what I said last week? This man was but a man. He understood what he said in chapter 3, the truth of the deceitfulness of sin. And it is to cause every single one of us to do two things. Begin to reassess our relationship to sin, especially if those sins are connected to any thoughts, any posture of the heart that is calling into question the truth of the gospel. You should walk away from here today as a professing Christian with an all different understanding or a renewed evaluation of the sins that you know that are in your life and what heart posture is connected to them. Okay? And secondly, the other thing it ought to do is make you run even faster, clean with all of your sanctified ability that the Spirit of grace has granted to you to the cross work of Jesus. Amen? That's what it's intended to do. The intention is not to manipulate you into staying a good little Christian. The the, the intention here is to drive you to Jesus and then to use whatever means, whatever tools, whatever spiritual resources, i.e. the church, i.e. His Word, i.e. one another's, use every single means you can to make it unto the end. That's the motivation. Why? Because... He is perhaps an older Christian man. Many believe Paul wrote this. Same guy wrote Romans 7. He knows himself. He loves us. He loves the church of Christ. He loves the gospel finished work of Christ. And so when we walk away from Hebrews 10, we don't question our salvation as it's made firm in Jesus. But we ought to be questioning our sins, beloved. We ought to be reevaluating the categories of sin and what heart postures connected to them. And those sins, I want to be very clear, that are beginning to put roots down. You know, you know, you know, plants, right? Gardening. There's the feeder roots, but then there's the tap roots. If there's any sins that are connected and trying to plant roots that call into question the validity of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the promises of the gospel. You had better get the spade work out. You had better get in the Word of God. You had better fall on your knees and say, Oh God, please save me from such sin. 
Please remove from my mind these lies of my flesh, the world and the devil. For I still profess, I still claim that Jesus is Lord, that He has washed me in the blood, and that He can purge these things. And I do belong to you. Why? Not because of my own perfection, but because of His perfection. That's how we walk away from a message like this. We run back to the Gospel of Christ. The promises of Christ. Don't let a misunderstanding of this passage keep you on the outside of the all-sufficient, atoning, ever-flowing work of Jesus' forgiveness and restoration, brothers and sisters. Don't let it do that. And don't let anyone ever twist this into thinking that if you continue sinning after you're a Christian, then there is no forgiveness of sin. Because I hope you see in the context, especially in light of how he's paralleling Old Testament passage, warning passages from Numbers and Deuteronomy, that the sinning willfully here is, as I've described it, a high-handed sin that is connected with an adversity to the gospel itself. I pray that none of us in here are at a point or a state in our walk with the Lord where we've come to that place. However, if there is, if there is, today's message was a perfect message, wasn't it? We are preparing to come to the Lord's Supper right now in your mind. Repent of that thinking. Repent of that sin. It is lies from your flesh. It is lies from the evil one. And Jesus purposely prayed in John 17, Father, protect them from the evil one. Stop watching the silly deconstruction testimonies. Stop thinking that way. They're meant and they're placed there by the strategy of the evil one to destroy your soul. And so you come to the Lord's Supper. And what is it? It's a wonderful reminder and visible representation that Jesus, as we sing, has paid it all. He has paid it all. The cup represents us committing afresh our belief that Jesus' blood has atoned for all of my sins. That it is there for me to come again and again and ask, Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me, forgive me. The bread, what is it? Paul tells us is inspired by the Spirit of 1 Corinthians. It is there to demonstrate for us that Christ went upon the cross, sacrificed His own body, because you could not do it. And I could not do it. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, on our best days, we are weak, creaturely beggars for grace who are sinners saved by grace. And that's what's so amazing. That's what's so amazing about the gospel. Is that it is there for you each and every day. So don't allow the weaknesses of your flesh. Don't allow the mockings of Satan to deter you from coming to the fountain at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ day in and day out. Let us go to Him in prayer. O God above, Lord, we bow in 
complete subjection and humility to your sovereign crown. We bow, O Lord, trembling, for we know ourselves, O God. And we confess, Lord, our sins before you, and we confess that we, O God, still by your preserving grace, believe that Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sins, from all of our iniquities, and will make us and present us spotless before you on that great day. O Father, I pray that as we end this message, you will use the words, Lord, that have been spoken, the text considered, as a master surgeon in the hard operation that only thy spirit can do. And where there is pruning that needs to take place, O Spirit of God, do the pruning. And O God, where there is edification, where there is restoration that needs to take place to a weary, beaten down, sin-laden believer, I pray, O Spirit of God, that you will do that work in their heart and bring them back in, Lord, a renewed repentance to the cross of Jesus. Father, we confess how much we need you. We confess, O God, how much we need thy spirit daily in our lives. Lord, restore. Lord, preserve. Lord, build up your body. And especially as we enter now into remembering the sacrificial work of thy son. O God, we pray that you would point us away from ourselves. And point us to Him, the perfect High Priest, the perfect, only, spotless, begotten Son of you, yours, who is the Lamb who has been slain and taken away all of our sins. God, protect us from the evil one. Oh, Father, please, I pray where there is creeping thoughts of apostasy, where there is, oh God, any sort of resemblance of heretical apostate thinking and temptation, help us, God. Keep us close to Thy cross. Keep us, preserve us, Lord. We are so weak and so vulnerable. We confess this to you. We need you. Help us, Lord, we pray, especially in light of today's passage, to think more soberly, to think more diligently about the verses that we considered before, all the means that you've given us. God, it's so easy in the weakness of our flesh to slumber. It's so easy to sleep. God, help us, Lord, For we know it's through this spiritual nourishment, this means of grace, that we will persevere to the end. And oh God, lest we be deceived, we do truly look forward to the returning of Christ. We long for that. Help us, Lord, to further cultivate within our heart and soul a posture that is expecting and that is wanting Jesus to return, that we could meet Him face to face and that we could be free from these creaturely temptations that plague us, O God. Lord, cultivate within us a love for the things that you were 
exhorting us in the text in 19 through 25, and then we'll pick up in 32 and 39. It is so easy for us in religiosity and the, the day in and the day out, Lord, to, to lose the fire and the zeal and the truth that these things are true. This is the true state of our existence. God, help us. We have so many enemies, namely the one that resides predominantly in our own breast. Lord, ourselves, let us, O oh God, not be deceived. Let us forever appreciate and understand the joy of our salvation as it rests in the finished work of Jesus. And may you make Jesus Christ our friend, our Lord, our Savior. Oh God, the Spirit, will you blossom within our hearts an all new love for Him, an all new affection for Him. God, give us, we pray, as if we, Lord, first met Him. Give us, we pray, a renewed love, a renewed spirit, as if, Lord, our eyes first beheld His glory, His love, His forgiveness, His majesty. Oh, we pray, Spirit of God, waken up our hearts. Give us just a, a small glimpse of the 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 beatific vision of Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father. He has accomplished everything. All truth resides in Him. Truth can go no further. He is our High Priest. And oh Jesus, we confessed and we still confess that You are our Lord. That You are our Savior. That we cling to Your cross with scarred and crippled weak hands. But oh, we pray, Jesus, please help us. Please help and strengthen our faith. Keep us and preserve us as Your sheep unto Thy blessed and victorious return. Come, we pray, Jesus. Come even yet this day. Remove, I pray, from us the heartache, the stain, the stench of sin. We wish to be free, O oh Christ, and to reside with you in that state of everlasting bliss and peace. You are our hope. You are our home. And oh Jesus, you are all that we have. Give us, I pray, Lord, a heart that wants to be at home. Give us a home, a heart, God, that, that wants to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Elevated up and out, Lord, of the present pilgrim journey that we're in. We love you, O oh God, and you are our Father because of thy Son, our great Savior. And we love you, O oh God the Spirit. You have been so faithful, you have always been there.
Oh God, the Spirit, you have been sent forth from the Father and Son and you have demonstrated yourself so faithful to us every single time that we have doubted, every single time we have called into question what you have revealed to us in your word. Oh, you have kept our hearts aright and on the narrow way. And we pray to you now, Father, that your spirit would continue to do that work. Let us never be deceived. Keep us, preserve us. Help us to walk as pilgrims with our heads down and our hearts aligned with the cross and promises of Jesus. Unto the very end, Lord, there are even in our little church, Lord, so many that are going through things in their lives. And I pray, O God, on behalf of all of us, that you would keep us. Give us, I pray, O the assurance of your love. Give us, I pray, O God, the assurance of the blessed reality that we belong to Jesus Christ. And while we do not know all of the answers to the uncertainties that lie ahead in our families and in our own lives, we can be certain of this, that we belong to you through Jesus, and that we will be kept, and that you you have given us the salvation. You have given us all of these gifts Oh, for a reason, for a purpose, in connection with your covenant people, your covenant community, that we would provoke one another unto love, that we provoke one another unto good works, that we would provoke one another to hold on unto the end. And so in that sense, I pray, God, that you would grant to us a greater love for one another. Lord, forgive us for those times and Our lives where, Lord, we just are reluctant to want to to connect and to love with one another. Lord, draw us closer. And in your wisdom, you know how to do that best. We see in the first century, it was by the sword. And we see throughout church history, many times it has been through starvation and persecution. And Lord, while we are careful for asking that which we truly do not know what may come. We do ask you, God, in your wisdom to do whatever it is to bring us to a place, Lord, where we really do care for one another, that we cry for one another, that we, Lord, pray earnestly for one another. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the thanks for you are so worthy. What a good God we serve. And we give you all the glory in the name that you have entrusted to us, your church, to profess unto the very end. And that is the name of Jesus the Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Brother Isaac, if uh, you and Brother Ross, if you'd come and pass out the elements of our supper, please.